It's the morning of June the 30th, 1910, in London, England. In the city of Westminster, lamplighters busy themselves extinguishing streetlights as the city comes to life. Men in bowler hats and three-piece suits briskly walk down the cobbles on their way to work, while women stroll in pairs, opening umbrellas as a light rain begins to fall. A thick layer of smog, pumped out by nearby factories, looms above the city, obscuring the already cloudy sky. The scene is watched over by Detective Chief Inspector Walter Dew from his office in Scotland Yard. It's a marvel how much the city had changed in the three decades since he joined the force. The roads, once dominated by horse-drawn carriages, are now peppered with automobiles, which whiz down the streets at speeds that make him uncomfortable. On the pavement, he spots ladies dressed all in white, holding signs which read, Votes for Women. Soon, the lamplighter he now sees snuff out the street light directly below him will be out of business as incandescent lights are quickly replacing gas lamps throughout the city. Dew can't help but think that perhaps London is moving on without him, and it's time for him to do the same by retiring. Little does he know that these new technologies will be vital in solving the biggest case of his career. The detective looks good for his 47 years. His sturdy frame still stands tall and firm, showing no signs of weakness. His face, framed by dark salt and pepper hair and accented by a prominent moustache, is still handsome. But this job tends to wear on people from the inside. Detective Dew's bright, kind eyes have seen horrors that no human should have to witness. He is still haunted by the gruesome scenes he saw in Whitechapel exactly 20 years ago when he first found himself on the trail of the man who became known as Jack the Ripper. For him, his inability to catch the killer and make them pay for what they did to those poor women is the greatest failure of his career. Maybe, he muses, he can leave it all behind, all the darkness and death, and start a new life with his beloved wife somewhere far away from the city that has taken so much from him. Fate, however, has other plans for Detective Dew. Suddenly, his reverie is broken by the sound of knocking on his office door. It's a secretary telling him that Superintendent Frank Castle Fröst wishes to see him. Dew follows her to Fröst's office, where he is introduced to John and Lillian Nash. John is a local theatre manager, and his wife, Lillian, is a musical artist. They've come to Scotland Yard with concerns about their dear friend, Cora Crippen. Cora is also a singer. Like the couple, she's a member of the Music Hall Ladies Guild, a charitable organization that supports female performers who have fallen on hard times. The Nashes explain that they had just returned from an American tour and received the shocking news that Cora was dead. Her husband, a dentist named Dr. Hawley Harvey Crippen told them she'd succumbed to pneumonia while traveling, but something about his story did not sit well with them. Our friend said she had gone suddenly to America without a word of goodbye to any of them, 
Mrs. Nash begins, shaking her head. Detective Jew can't help but be a bit distracted by the large ostrich feather hat perched atop her dark curly hair. Naturally, we were upset. I went to see Dr. Crippin. He told me the same story. But there was something about him I didn't like, she continues, narrowing her eyes. Very soon after his wife's death, Dr. Crippen was openly going about with his typist, a girl called Ethel Lenev. After the Nashes finish their story, Detective Jew sits silently for a moment, going over everything he's just heard. He's fairly nonplussed. Most of what they've said can easily be explained away as a misunderstanding. These bohemian types have a flair for the dramatic after all. It appears they are more outraged by Dr. Crippen's indecency than suspicious he may have harmed his late wife. Still, he admits, the matter needs clearing up. He agrees to begin an initial inquiry. It will be an easy case, he assures himself. He'll ask a few questions, and in a matter of days, the Nash's concerns will prove to be unfounded. What Detective Dew does not know is that he is about to embark on one of the most significant cases of his career, one that he will later describe as the most intriguing murder mystery of the century. His wits will be tested, his movements scrutinized by the press as the whole world is consumed by one question. What happened to Cora Crippen? I'm John Hopkins and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Immediately after speaking with the Nashes, Detective Jew leaves Scotland Yard and makes a beeline to the headquarters of the Music Hall Ladies Guild on New Oxford Street. He understands from the Nashes that the ladies at the helm of this charitable organization have started their own investigation into Cora's disappearance and wants to find out what they know. The headquarters are connected to the Princess Theatre and walking in, Dew feels like he's entered a backstage area. Glittering costumes and plumed boas hang on racks throughout the space. Flamboyantly dressed women talk loudly amongst each other while a group practices a musical number in the corner. Though Dew feels out of place, the ladies are eager to talk to him about their missing friend. The guild members tell Dew that Cora was known to them by her stage name, Belle Elmore. After moving from New York to London in 1897, she pursued her lifelong dream of becoming a singer. But her career never really took off after she received a slew of bad reviews. But Cora was never bitter and decided to focus her efforts on helping the less fortunate through her work with the Guild. If she couldn't be on stage, she could at least surround herself with people who shared her passion for the theatre. Plump, with a diminutive stature and kind face, Cora religiously attended every Guild meeting decked out in flamboyant outfits and dripping in her favourite jewellery. Which is why they were so surprised when she didn't show up for the weekly meeting on February the 2nd, 1910. May claims that she went to the Crippin's house that very day to see if Cora was all right. Instead of finding her friend, she was confronted by Dr. Crippin's typist, Ethel Lenev, who unceremoniously handed her a letter purportedly from Cora. May was stunned to find that it was a letter of resignation from her position as the Guild's treasurer. It explained that she'd suddenly been called to America due to the illness of a relative and that she would be away for several months. Cora was an avid letter writer, and May, along with all the Guild members, had received many postcards and notes from her over their years of friendship. May assures Detective Dew that the letter of resignation she was given that day was not in Cora's handwriting. At this point, the Guild was worried, but not suspicious that Cora had been harmed. After all, she might have asked her husband to write the letter for her if she was in such a hurry to leave. But Lenev's presence at the house troubled them, and they began to suspect Dr. Crippin was having an affair. Their suspicions seemed to be confirmed when, on February the 20th, 1910, just over two weeks after Cora's departure, Dr. Crippin attended a charity ball for the Music Hall Ladies Guild with Lenev on his arm. Bringing another woman to an event organized by his wife's beloved association was already bizarre. Stranger still was what Lenev was wearing. Pinned to her breast was Cora's diamond brooch. Weeks passed, with no news from Cora, 
Several guild members called round to Dr. Cribbin's house to express concern and were told that their dear friend had fallen ill with pneumonia. Then, on March the 24th, they received shocking news. Dr. Crippen informed them that Cora had died while in California and that her ashes were to be sent back to London. He offered no further explanation and quickly left for a holiday in France for a change of air. Upon his return, Crippen donned the traditional black armband and hat to signify his mourning, even had mourning cards made and sent out to Cora's friends, but he certainly didn't behave like a widower. Rumour has it that he has already moved Miss Ethel Lenev into his marital home. Now, Cora was in great health the last time they saw her, so the Guild members felt something was fishy. None of them believed Dr. Crippen's pneumonia story, so they decided to investigate. Their first move was to write to the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce. Crippen had told them that Cora had died and been cremated in L.A., and they hoped to acquire her death certificate. But they were shocked when the Chamber of Commerce wrote back, informing them that no one had died by the name of Crippen in March of 1910. This, they tell Detective Dew, was the first, but not the last, lie they caught Dr. Crippen in. Their next step was to contact every shipping line with routes to America and found that no passengers named Crippen had boarded any ship bound to the United States on or around February the 2nd. Now certain that Dr. Crippen had something to hide, they hired a private detective, but he wasn't able to find anything that might reveal Cora's whereabouts, which is why they'd finally come to Scotland Yard for help. When the ladies finished their story, Detective Dew is taken aback. There does seem to be more to the case than he initially thought, though at this point he doesn't suspect foul play. A good detective never jumps to conclusions before they have all the facts, and he has yet to speak to the person at the centre of the entire mystery. Detective Dew decides it's time to pay Dr. Crippen a visit. On the morning of July the 8th, 1910, Detective Dew, accompanied by his partner, Detective Sergeant Mitchell, head to Crippen's home at 39 Hilldrop Crescent. 39 Hilldrop Crescent is a fairly large, semi-detached brick building set back from the street. Several overgrown trees in the front yard shade the windows from prying eyes. Dew knocks on the door and is greeted by the Crippen's French maid, who ushers the detectives into the hallway. Soon, a young, plain-looking girl walks down the steps. A large diamond brooch glints on the lapel of her drab, modest dress, looking rather out of place. Ethel Lenev, Detective Dew thinks. The girl seems nervous as she tells the detectives that Dr. Crippen is at work. I am the housekeeper, you know, she says, as though making an excuse for her presence. So I assumed, Detective Dew replies. You are Miss Lenev, are you not? Lenev blushes. Yes, that's right. Unfortunate the doctor is out, Dew continues without skipping a beat. I want to see him rather urgently. I am Chief Inspector Dew of Scotland Yard. 
Would you be asking too much for you to take us down to Albion House? I'm anxious not to lose any time. Of course, Dew and Mitchell could make their way to the doctor's office on their own, but they want to keep eyes on Lenev, fearing she might hide important evidence if left alone. Miss Lenev nervously obliges. When they arrive at Albion House, Lenev runs to fetch Dr. Crippen. After a few moments, he appears. The first thing Detective Dew notes is just how strange-looking the man is. Dr. Crippen's spindly frame stands at just five feet four inches. He has odd, bulging eyes, made to look even larger by a set of thick, wire-framed glasses. An enormous, bushy moustache obscures half of his small, delicate face. The unusual little man listens intently as Detective Dew explains that he has been investigating Cora's death and is unsatisfied with the information he's received. Dr. Crippen appears calm. He lets out a heavy sigh as he replies, I suppose I had better tell the truth. The stories I have told about her death are untrue. As far as I know, she is still alive. He then ushers the detectives into his office and begins telling them what Dew will later describe as an ingenious story. He admits that though he and Cora appeared happy on the outside, their marriage had been troubled for years. Dr. Cripping claims he had loved Cora deeply and supported her dreams of becoming a singer, even paying for her opera lessons and helping manage her career. But according to him, Cora did not reciprocate his feelings and began seeing other men on the side about 10 years ago. There were frequent quarrels when she got into the most violent tempers and often threatened to leave me, saying she had a man she could go to and would end it all. Dr. Cripping continues, shaking his head. About four years ago, I discontinued sleeping with her and have never cohabited with her since. Dr. Cripping tells them that he had been living with Miss Lenev ever since his wife left and that their affair had begun three years earlier. At 48 years old, he is a good 20 years older than Lenev, but loves the young woman with all his heart. On the night of January the 31st, Crippen explains that he and Cora had gotten into a terrible argument. His wife flew into a fit of rage, cursing at him and haphazardly packing her things. This is the finish of it, Crippen says she screamed. I won't stand it any longer. I shall leave you tomorrow and you will never hear of me again. The next day, he returned home from work around 6pm to find his wife gone. To avoid scandal, he told Cora's friends that she'd left for California on urgent family business, forging her letter of resignation to the Guild. When he realised this wouldn't explain her not coming back, he decided to tell everyone she'd died unexpectedly. When Dr. Crippen finishes his statement, the detectives then speak with Miss Lenev, who corroborates his story. Her answers don't feel rehearsed, and it appears she truly believes what Crippen had told her about his wife's disappearance. Still, Detective Dew feels it necessary to search 39 Hilldrop Crescent for any evidence of foul play. It is, after all, a rather bizarre and elaborate tale.
Dr. Crippen agrees to the search, and they head back to his home. Detectives Jew and Mitchell scour each of the eight rooms from top to bottom and find nothing suspicious. They even walk through the Crippen's coal cellar. Nothing in this small, cramped space immediately jumps out at Dew, but something about it gives him pause. He shakes his head. He's probably just put off because all dark cellars seem to have a sinister air about them. After several hours of searching, Detectives Jew and Mitchell leave Hilldrop Crescent well after midnight. They'd gone seeking answers, but were left with only more questions. Detective Jew can't quite put his finger on it, but something about the whole Crippen affair is not right. Dr. Crippen appeared honest and transparent during his interview, divulging intimate truths about his troubled marriage and affair with Miss Lenev that most gentlemen would try to conceal. But after nearly three decades on the job, Detective Dew has developed a sort of intuition. Dr. Crippen hadn't said anything that would directly implicate him in his wife's disappearance, but his body told a different story. The way his lip twitched when he said Cora's name, how he adjusted his glasses when speaking of her alleged whereabouts, the sweat that beaded on his brow while he assured Detective Dew that Cora was alive. These subtle gestures, all of which might be ignored by someone who hasn't spent much of their time with the world's worst criminals, all scream one word to Dew. Guilt. Plus, the sleepless nights have returned. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Whenever Dew works a big murder case, he suffers from chronic insomnia. Though he has not yet found any evidence to suggest Cora was killed, in the days following his interview with Dr. Crippen, he lies awake at night, his mind racing with thoughts. I was dog-tired, yet sleep I could not. My mind refused to rest, he later wrote. The events of the day kept cropping up. What was behind it all? There was something I now felt sure. Crippen had a secret which he was cunningly trying to hide. There would be no rest for me until I had found out. On the 11th of June 1910, Detective Dew leaves his home, determined to put an end to his sleepless nights. As the sun rises over London and the city slowly comes to life, he winds his way through its foggy streets towards Albion House. Upon arriving, 
he's surprised to find that Dr. Crippin isn't there. Neither is Lenev. Crippin's colleague explains that shortly after the detective's first visit, Dr. Crippin sent a letter stating, I now find that in order to escape trouble, I shall be obliged to absent myself for a time, and have not returned to the office since. Detective Dew's instincts are correct. The small, timid doctor has something to hide. Dew and his partner, Detective Mitchell, head to 39 Hilldrop Crescent to investigate further. They're let in by Dr. Crippin's French maid, who explains that she has not seen her employer in several days. The two men decide to take advantage of their suspect's absence and search the house again. Last time, Crippin had led them from room to room, surveying their every move, perhaps throwing them off scent. Today, with Crippin gone, the house offers up its secrets. Tucked away in the first floor wardrobe, Detective Dew finds a loaded revolver. He'd searched this very same wardrobe only a few days earlier and is sure that the weapon was not there. Why has it suddenly appeared? He wonders to himself. Then, a chilling realization dawns on him. Perhaps the revolver was in Dr. Crippin's pocket throughout the initial search. His hands at the ready to fire, should Dew have found anything suspicious. He shivers at the thought. Next, Detective Dew and his partner turn their attention to the garden. Dew himself is a keen gardener. It takes his mind off the gruesome murders he sees day in and day out, a chance to nurture life rather than obsess about death. But Dew has a sneaking suspicion that something is rotting beneath the lush plants in Crippin's backyard. Armed with spades and shovels, he and several other officers begin digging. They find nothing suspicious. Detective Dew is undeterred. He knows that the answer to Cora Crippen's disappearance can be found within the walls of 39 Hilldrop Crescent. Lurking somewhere they've yet to discover. For two more nights, Detective Dew battles insomnia. His mind is filled with the disturbing information he's acquired since his last visit to Crippin's home. Apparently, on July the 9th, a mere 12 hours after the detective's first visit, Crippin informed his house staff that he and Ms. Lenev would be leaving to avoid a little scandal and pack their bags. Just before their departure, Dr. Crippin gave his servants two pounds and told him to buy a boy's suit, braces, tie, size five shoes, and a brown bowler hat. He then changed a check for 37 pounds to gold before disappearing. Dr. Crippen is scared. Of that, Dew is sure. But is it just of being embroiled in a scandal or something far more sinister? Detective Dew racks his brain, going over everything he's seen in 39 Hilldrop Crescent with a fine tooth comb. There is one room in particular that haunts his sleepless nights the cellar. He and his colleagues had checked the Crippin's coal cellar twice now and found nothing suspicious. Still, something about it nagged at Dew. That sinister cellar seemed to draw me to it, 
he later writes. A loose board near the door each time it was stepped upon seemed to creak out, stop, stop. On the morning of June the 13th, Detective Jew heads once again to Hilldrop Crescent, determined to put his mind at ease. He and Detective Mitchell head down into the dark, soot-covered cellar. With no windows and little air, the room feels like a cramped tomb. They get on their hands and knees, testing the floor bricks with pokers for any sign of tampering. Dog-tired, Dew is about to give up when suddenly the poker lodges itself in the mortar. Two bricks easily come loose. A shock runs through Dew's body. The haze of fatigue lifts as excitedly he begins lifting one brick after another. Then, all at once, the unmistakable scent of decay erupts within the room. <laughs> Detective Dew and his partner begin to retch uncontrollably. Gasping for air, they run out of the cellar and into the garden. It appears the answer to Cora Crippen's disappearance had been beneath their feet the entire time. After a few drams of Crippen's brandy, the detectives compose themselves and head back to the ghastly scene in the cellar. What they have found is not a body, but rather pieces of one. Hunks of flesh expertly flayed from the bone, organs strewn haphazardly throughout. Visions of Jack the Ripper's mutilated victims flash before Dew's eye as he gazes down at this gruesome display. Detective Dew is certain that these remains belong to Cora, but the good doctor has done an excellent job in concealing her identity. The head, genitals, hands and feet are all missing. Crippen did, however, make one fatal error. The remains are covered in hardened clumps of the chemical lime. When dry, quicklime will quickly dissolve human tissue. When wet, on the other hand, it becomes a preserver rather than destroyer of flesh. Crippen had clearly mixed the lime with water before pouring it on Cora's remains. As a result, much of the skin is still intact. They may have a chance at positively identifying the body after all. Detective Dew sends for the local divisional police surgeon, Dr. Marshall, to come and examine the remains. He believes that the flesh is human, but cannot be certain until further tests are done. More officers come to capture photos of the grisly scene. The explosions of their flashbulbs draws the attention of the press, and the next morning, the Times reports that a body had been found in Dr. Crippen's basement. Soon, the news is filled with headlines about the murderous doctor and his young lover on the lamb from Scotland Yard. Detective Dew must now focus all his efforts on tracking down the fugitives and bringing them to justice. He sends cables to police forces throughout Britain and continental Europe, with detailed descriptions of Crippen and Lenev. These descriptions, however, won't be any help, because the fugitives are travelling in disguise.
It's 8.30am on July the 20th, 1910. Captain Henry Kendall walks down the deck of the transatlantic steamer, the Montrose, currently docked in Antwerp. The ship is set to begin its journey to Quebec in just a few minutes, and Captain Kendall is spending some time greeting his guests before departure. He always does this before the start of a long journey. It helps the passengers feel more at ease. But today, he has a special reason to keep a close eye on the 373 people now boarding the Montrose. He has just sailed back from London, where he was told by the Thames police to be on the lookout for Dr. Hawley Harvey Crippen and Ethel Leneve. They explained that investigators suspect the young woman may be disguised as a boy due to the fact that Crippen had recently purchased a boy's suit. Before departing, Captain Kendall went ashore and bought a copy of the Daily Mail, which contained pictures and descriptions of the fugitives. He hung the photographs up in his quarters, vowing to keep an eye out for anyone who resembles the murderous doctor and his young bride. Captain Kendall's piercing blue eyes scan the crowd. It's mostly just people milling about, enjoying the fresh sea air and sunshine. But suddenly, he spots something strange. What appears to be a father and son stroll towards him. The older man is clean-shaven, and the young boy wears a large flat cap obscuring his face. Nothing suspicious at first glance, but the way they behave towards one another is bizarre. The boy, who according to the passenger log is 16, holds his father's hand and squeezes it affectionately. To show such affection to your grown son, such behavior deeply unsettled the captain. I thought it strange and unnatural, Kendall later recalls. It occurred to me at once that they might be Crippin and Lenev. Captain Kendall tips his hat to the pair and turns his head to watch them as they pass. He notices that the boy's trousers are pinned in the back, as though they don't quite fit him. He rushes back to his cabin and gazes at the photographs of the fugitives. Using chalk, he whites out Crippen's signature moustache and spectacles. Then he cuts out a piece of cardboard and obscures Lenev's hair. He steps back and looks at his work. A shiver runs down his spine. Captain Kendall is now certain that a cold-blooded killer is aboard his ship. Kendall, however, is a cautious man and wants to be absolutely sure of his suspicions before making a move. He decides to test Crippen over the coming days. First, he approaches the man with concerns about passengers with seasickness. Crippen, who is posing as a merchant, answers in medical terms, indicating that he is indeed a doctor. Captain Kendall also calls to him several times using his alias, Mr. Robinson, and notices that Crippen does not respond until prompted by Lenev. Kendall makes a point of engaging Crippen in conversation often, so he can get a good look at his face, and notices a distinct indentation above the bridge of the man's nose, indicating that he usually wears spectacles. Finally, on July the 22nd, 1910, Captain Kendall makes an historic decision. The Montrose is unique in that it is one of the 60 ships in the world fitted with a Marconi wireless transmitter. Just nine years prior, in 1901, the first wireless broadcast signal was sent across the Atlantic, 
Before, transatlantic transmissions relied on giant underwater cables and could only be sent on land. With wireless, however, boats gained the ability to communicate with one another and with land bases. Captain Kendall's message is the first ever instance of wireless being used in a criminal investigation. It reads, Have strong suspicion that Crippin, London cellar murderer and accomplice are amongst saloon passengers. Moustache shaved off, growing beard. Accomplice dressed as boy. Voice, manner and build undoubtedly a girl. Kendall. As the message flies through the air towards the director of the shipping company in Liverpool, Captain Kendall has nothing left to do but wait. Back in London, Detective Dew is feeling discouraged. Press and even some of his colleagues at Scotland Yard have started to turn on him for letting Crippen and Lenev get away. And as each day passes, it seems less likely that they'll ever be found. He has, however, made one major breakthrough. The coroner's inquest had taken place on July the 18th. During the proceedings, the coroner asserted that whoever eviscerated the remains must have had some knowledge of anatomy. A doctor, perhaps. He also stated that he was fairly sure the remains were female, but could not be certain they belonged to Cora. Detective Dew knew he'd need to find some unique physical characteristic to link the remains to the suspected murder victim. By chance, when he was leaving the inquest, he heard a group of women outside discussing the case. One of them was Cora's friend, and he heard her say that Cora had once undergone a major operation. He pulled the woman aside and asked if he'd heard her correctly. Oh yes, the woman replied. Cora had an operation years ago in America. She had quite a big scar on the lower part of her body. I've seen it. Dew immediately told the coroner, who confirmed that among the remains was a piece of skin that bore a long, triangular scar that could have been the result of surgery. Detective Dew is now one step closer to identifying his victim, but no justice can be served until he catches the killer. Then, finally, on July the 22nd, he gets a call from the Liverpool police who tell him about Captain Kendall's wireless message. At this point, Dew has received thousands of false sightings, but something about this tip makes him spring into action. Call it Detective's Intuition. He devises a plan to overtake the Montrose on a faster steamship and beat Crippen and Lenev to Canada. He calls the White Star Line offices and finds that the Laurentic, a steamer that moves 3.5 miles faster per hour than the Montrose, is leaving the following evening for Quebec. Though it's a full three days behind Captain Kendall's vessel, the White Star representative is confident that the Laurentic will make land on July the 30th, just one day before the Montrose. Detective Yu doesn't hesitate in booking a ticket. Dew knows that he's taking a major risk in pursuing the wireless lead. He is the lead investigator, and his absence could jeopardize the case. But in his own words, a decision had to be arrived at. The die was cast, the Rubicon crossed, and I didn't care to dwell on the eventualities of the future. 
On July the 23rd, he boards the Laurentic, assuming the name John Dewhurst. The chase is now underway. Detective Dew had gone to great lengths to try and keep news of his voyage from spreading in the press. He did not even tell his wife where he was going and insisted that Scotland Yard officials refer to the pursuit simply as Operation Handcuffs. While aboard, Dew desperately attempts to contact Captain Kendall via wireless to instruct him not to communicate Crippen's presence to anyone, but none of the messages go through. However, unbeknownst to Dew, Captain Kendall has already started communicating with the press. Dew's transatlantic chase is now the subject of every headline from London to New York. Kendall has jeopardized everything. If Crippen discovers he's been found out, he might devise a way to flee or take his own life. Wires begin flooding to the Montrose for Crippen, asking him for a comment. Luckily, Captain Kendall is able to intercept all of them. Crippen, it appears, has no idea that he's being pursued. He has an easy manner and seems to be enjoying himself, spending time with Lenev on the aft deck and in the ship's bar. The pair even accept Kendall's invitation to dine with him at the captain's table. As the Montrose gets closer to its destination, however, Crippen becomes more anxious. He frequently asks Captain Kendall for details on the ship's arrival. Will the Montrose be met by a pilot ship to take them ashore? If so, where? How long will the journey from ship to shore take? It's clear to Kendall that Dr. Crippen is devising an escape plan. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. On July the 30th, the Laurentic reaches its destination, a full 24 hours before the Montrose is due to arrive. Detective Dew is relieved to see the pilot boat approaching, but his relief quickly turns to annoyance when he realizes that it's filled with reporters. Dew hates the press, particularly the North American kind, who, in his experience, are far more aggressive. He's a public servant, not a celebrity and resents that journalists try to paint him as some character in a detective novel. He rolls his eyes as the reporters snap shots of him and begin chanting his name. The pilot boat brings him to Father Point, a barren peninsula in the St. Lawrence River, dotted with fishermen's shacks. That night he lays awake, his sleep disturbed by foghorns and the blinding light of the nearby lighthouse. 
As the sun rises on July the 31st, Dew prepares himself for what will be the most significant arrest of his career. Donning a pilot boat operator uniform, he, along with a genuine pilot and a Canadian detective, row out to the Montrose as it approaches shore. Captain Kendall has been informed via wireless that Dew of the Yard will arrive in disguise. The men meet on the bridge, shake hands, and head to the captain's quarters. There, Dew waits for Kendall to bring him Crippen. After a few minutes, the door opens and the unsuspecting fugitive walks through. Presently, only a few feet separated us. A pair of bulgy eyes were raised to mine, Dew recounts. The little man was Crippen. I was thrilled that this was no wild goose chase after all. During my long career as a detective, I've experienced many big moments, but at no other time have I felt such a sense of triumph and achievement. Crippen's face turns white, his strange eyes flashing with recognition. So close to freedom, the jig is finally up. Good morning, Dr. Crippen, Detective Dew says calmly. Good morning, Mr. Dew. Crippen stammers. Dew pauses, letting the gravity of the moment sink in, before continuing, you will be arrested for the murder and mutilation of your wife, Cora Crippen, in London, on or about the 2nd of February last. Crippen is surrounded and in no position to resist. Dew has him searched and finds all of Cora's jewellery pinned to the inside of his jacket. Then he heads to Crippen's cabin to confront Miss Lenev. There she sits, hair shorn, dressed in her ill-fitting boy's suit. Upon seeing Dew, the young woman lets out a piercing shriek and falls to the floor. Detective Dew's 3,000-mile search for the fugitives has finally come to an end. Now, all that awaits is their trial. Dr. Crippen and Ethel Lenev are brought back to London on August the 20th. Lenev, who is charged with accessory to murder, is held in Holloway Prison, while Crippen is sent to Brixton. They are to be tried separately. Both will plead not guilty. On October the 18th, 1910, at the famed Old Bailey Courthouse, the trial of Dr. Hawley Harvey Crippen begins. In the court of public opinion, Crippen has long since been found guilty. Newspapers already refer to him as the London cellar murderer, and he's greeted with boos and hisses from a large crowd as officers lead him, handcuffed, into the trial. Crippen's defence begins by laying the burden of proof on the prosecution. Yes, investigators had found some form of remains in Crippen's cellar, but they could not, beyond a shadow of a doubt, prove they were Cora. They could not, in fact, even prove if they were male or female. So really, according to the defence, Cora Crippen could be alive and well in some unknown location, just like their client said. Dr. Crippen offers no explanation of the remains found in his cellar, but speculates they must have been there when he moved in. The prosecution, however, pokes holes in all these arguments. 
They called Dr. August Pepper, the Home Office pathologist to the stand, who has spent months examining the remains. He states that he believes the body was buried in the cellar shortly after death and remained there anywhere between four to eight months. When asked if he thought they could have been placed there before September 1905, when the Crippins moved in, he replies definitively, Oh no, absolutely impossible. Dr. August Pepper continues by affirming his belief that the scar tissue found at the crime scene was most certainly the result of a surgery and appeared to come from the abdomen, the exact area where Cora had been operated on. But the prosecution has saved their most damning finding for last. They call senior Home Office analyst Dr. Wilcox to the stand. Wilcox tells the court that he found traces of an alkaloid poison in all the organs he'd been given to examine. Through further testing, he determined that the poison was hyacine, a drug usually given in very small doses to treat acute forms of insanity. He determined that the victim had died by taking a massive amount of hyacine orally, which would have almost immediately paralyzed before killing them. Wilcox thanks the killer's incorrect use of the quicklime for this discovery. Quicklime is an antiseptic, he explains. It helped preserve the viscera, without which I doubt the hyacinth would be discovered. Dr. Crippen's face turns bright red at the mention of the hyacinth, but quickly loses all color as he sees the next witness the prosecution calls, his local chemist. The chemist confirms that Dr. Crippen had ordered five grains of hyacinth from his pharmacy on January the 19th, less than two weeks before Cora Crippen went missing. Five grains of hyacinth is a massive dose, and there is no good reason for a dentist like Crippen to use it for treatment. When Crippen takes the stand, he claims that he planned to use the hyacinth as a nerve remedy in a homeopathic preparation, that is, reduced to extremely minute doses. He claims that he diluted the poison immediately, but could not account for the over 300 doses that said method would produce. After the prosecution and defense give their closing arguments, the jury heads to their chambers to deliberate. They re-emerge just 27 minutes later with a verdict. They have found Dr. Hawley Harvey Crippen guilty of the murder and mutilation of his wife, Cora Crippen. The presiding judge reads out his sentence. Hawley Harvey Crippen, you have been convicted upon evidence which could leave no doubt on the minds of any reasonable man that you cruelly poisoned your wife, that you concealed your crime, you mutilated her body and disposed piecemeal of her remains. I have now to pass on the sentence of the court that you be hanged by the neck until you are dead. And may the Lord have mercy on your soul. The court is far more lenient with Miss Lenev. They discover, based on overwhelming witness testimony, that Lenev was completely ignorant of the murder and was fed the same lie that Crippen had told the rest of the world. Furthermore, there is simply no evidence at all to link her to the murder of Cora. Her defense paints her, by all accounts accurately, as a sweet, naive girl under the control of a much older man. 
The jury takes just 20 minutes to find her innocent of all charges. Two days before Dr. Crippen's execution, Detective Dew sits in his Scotland Yard office, reading the daily paper. Plastered across the front page is Crippen's last published letter, written while awaiting the hangman's noose. He writes, In this farewell letter to the world, written as I face eternity, I say that Ethel Lenev has loved me as few women love men. To her, I pay this last tribute. It is of her that my last thoughts have been. My last prayer will be that God will protect her and keep her safe from harm and allow her to join me in eternity. Dew can't help but feel a twinge of sadness. Of course, Dr. Crippen deserved all that was coming to him, but it's obvious that he and Lenev truly loved one another. At 9am on November the 23rd, 1910, Dr. Hawley Harvey Crippen is hanged at Pentonville Prison. At his request, a photograph of Ethel Lenev is placed in his coffin before it's lowered into an unmarked grave within prison grounds. The London Cellar murder is Detective Dew's final case as Detective Chief Inspector at Scotland Yard. He retires a year after Crippen's execution, saying that it seemed a fitting moment to do so. He is given an exemplary certificate of character, meaning that throughout his 30 years of service, not a single complaint had been lodged against him. In his autobiography, Detective Dew muses about the gruesome symmetry of his career at Scotland Yard. It began with Jack the Ripper and ended with Crippen, crimes that both featured the mutilation of bodies. After being witness to the very worst London had to offer, is it any wonder then that he decides to leave? In 1911, Detective Dew and his wife moved to a small bungalow in the quiet seaside village of Worthing on the south coast of England. Occasionally, no doubt, he is still troubled by insomnia, waking in a cold sweat from fitful dreams of chasing down murderers. It is the ones that got away that disturb his sleep the most. Otherwise, he enjoys a peaceful retirement until his death in 1946. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. On the Easter Bank holiday weekend of 2015, one of the most daring diamond heists in British history occurred in London's Hatton Garden district. With potentially £40 million worth of jewels missing, Scotland Yard's elite robbery and organised crime unit, the Flying Squad, are put on the case. It's clear from the beginning that the heist was carried out by a highly skilled group of thieves, but the Flying Squad officers struggled to uncover their identity. That is, until CCTV footage reveals that they're a ragtag gang of criminals that have been on their radar for a long, long time. When they're finally unmasked, the truth shocks the nation. Because there's old school, and then there's just, well, old. Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, 
produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boirot for Parcast. Written and produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound design by Matthias Torres Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Kian Ryan Morgan. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 